The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We're continuing to study in God's Word the letter of Paul to Philippi, a church he loved. There were many friends there. It was not a letter full of conflict. It was a letter full of warmth. But it dealt with many very important subjects of the Christian life. I read today Philippians 1.27, and I'll continue into chapter 2, the first two verses. Listen to God's holy Word. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. This is the Word of our God. Father, may this truth, as this apostle so long ago wrote it, under your Holy Spirit, reverberate and live and shape us and change us to be strong for Jesus Christ in our day. We pray to his glory. Amen. My three sons today are men in their 30s, but it doesn't seem that awfully long to me that we, about this time of year, a little later than this in the season, we're taking each of them at a time when they were age 18, to a college campus and facing that great parting that every parent comes to if your child goes to college, when you must deliver them there and then get in your car and drive away and think, what happens now? I remember quite well with my daughter, who even as a young girl was rather mature in her thinking and always demonstrated that she made good choices. We didn't probably worry so much about what she would do at college, and I'm not saying that we worried a lot about our sons either. But boys are different, and you wonder, what will young men do when given unlimited freedom and perhaps companions that uh, you wouldn't necessarily 
choose for them. What will they do? Will they make good choices? Will they live in, a, in an honoring way before God in a way that you would be proud of if you knew what they were up to? And, you know, as a parent, there's some way that you want to get the little lecture in just before you leave without knowing how to do it. Well, I can recall, and I think I did this with each of my three boys, as I can remember it at least with one or two of them, that as I shook their hand and we parted at the freshman college dormitory, I said to my sons, Son, remember where you came from and who you belong to. Now, they might have just dismissed that and probably did as just corny advice from dad and wouldn't even remember today that I said it. But my hope in saying it was that perhaps when they were tempted to do something foolish, they might consider the heritage of their family. And what would mom and dad think if they knew I was doing this? And more than that, I was hoping that they would consider that they belonged to someone greater than mom and dad, that a great Savior had bought them with his blood and was watching over them, and that they were to live for his honor as well. And actually, all I was doing was paraphrasing for my sons something like the admonition of 1 Corinthians 6.20 that says, you are not your own. In other words, you don't belong to yourself. Now, if anything could be absolutely contrary to the wisdom of the world today, it's that. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Well, Philippians 1.27 brings us to a point in this letter where Paul gently makes a turn now and stops speaking about Christ being exhibited and glorified in his own circumstances there in prison, in life or death, as we've been seeing. But now he starts to admonish his friends to live their lives well and, if need be, to die well in the same triumphant, joyful spirit as Paul said he had as a Christian disciple. And he's urging them that their governing principle, the thrust, the motivation of their whole lives must be Christ and the message of Christ in his cross as that which above everything else they want to see working out in their lives. Too often it is said that people can't see Christ in the Christians of today. We blend in too well. We wear the camouflage of the world and we fit right in when in fact we ought to stick out. We ought to give in our lives, in our words, in our non-participation as well as our participation in things a example that here is Christ shaping a person, making decisions of the will for this person. We are to live worthy, Paul says, of our spiritual calling in our Savior and of all the equipment He has given us to live differently. We have a calling And we have resources from God to live out that calling. It's a great privilege, this calling of ours. But it implies responsibility, and it asks for action from us. Now, our passage begins in verse 27 with a challenge from Paul, first of all. And I would say he's telling us here to live up to a standard of unique kingdom citizenship. Much like I told my sons, remember where you came from and who you belong to. 
Back in the first century, we find there were actually few large nations like we have today. If you went abroad in other parts of the world, you probably wouldn't say, well, I'm an American or I'm a Frenchman or I'm an Englishman. You were more identified by a town or a city or, or maybe a little district of the world that you were from because nations in the, in the current day uh, standard didn't exist in, in quite the same manner back in those times. So people would say, well, I'm a Macedonian, that little part of uh, the peninsula there where Philippi was, or I'm a, I'm a Philippian, I'm from Philippi, and they had pride in the citizenship of that town. We know that those from Philippi had a special pride because that was a Roman colony. And so if you were born there, you were a Roman citizen. And it was something in those days to be able to say, I'm a citizen of Rome. You stuck your chin up a little higher, and you had certain privileges in the world that not everybody else had. I think Paul was playing upon that sense of citizenship when he makes the appeal here. As he tells these friends that his life is dominated by his citizenship, but it's a spiritual citizenship, belonging to Christ. Yes, he was a Roman, but he was never particularly elitist in asserting that on any occasion. Rather, he points here to his adopted status and theirs as children of God, adopted by God's grace as they have believed in Christ and called him Lord and Savior. And he says, whatever happens, make sure you conduct yourselves, you live out your life. The old King James says, let your conversation be. But it doesn't mean just talk out of your mouth. It means everything about your life. Live your life in a way worthy of this calling you have through the gospel of Christ. Now, there's an important aspect here of of Christian morality and Christian behavior, you would say. So often when we start to think about how a Christian behaves or lives their lives, we start to think about rules or standards or commandments. And maybe we think, well, if we've amassed everything that a Christian is told to not do and do, there would be this big rule book of 235 prohibitions and, you know, 250 do's and other don'ts and so on. And if we just followed the rule book, then we know we are Christians. And indeed, that's where much Christian emphasis goes in our day, because that's an easy way to do it, sort of have the rule book and just tick off certain things and say, I'm keeping the rules. I'm sure God must be pleased. But that is not the fundamental appeal to Christian morality here. The appeal is to be that new person that God has created you to be in Christ, to realize you are a new creature, a new creation by grace through faith in Jesus. And so you go into this world living according to a different standard with someone new ruling over you, not yourself anymore. You dwell literally in the embrace and in the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You have his power in you. He's your yardstick for behavior. His character is something you're aware of as as a gigantic example before you all the time, and it empowers changes in you, real changes. Now, sure, Christians are aware of certain rules and standards of the New Testament. We want to follow the Ten Commandments as far as we're able to and the various commands of Jesus in places like the Sermon on the Mount and others. And and yes, we want to obey ethical rules, but the main thrust is we are new people. 
We belong to a master, not ourselves. And therefore, fundamentally, the reason why I don't go out and deliberately lie and steal and deceive and commit adultery and all these things is not just because the rule book says don't do them, but because I would be shaming the master whom I belong to if I was to go do those things with impunity and and try to live by that standard. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, as Paul saying, Christ died there, he says, in order to purify for himself a peculiar people who are eager to do what is good. We often make little jokes about that, how Christians are peculiar enough without becoming any more peculiar. But it's not talking about making ourselves odd. It's saying that if we are ruled by this different master and given this new birth and have this Holy Spirit living in us, we're going to be distinct. We can't help but be stamped out of a different mold. And standards of of mere worldly conduct or people who consider their standard of behavior, well, everybody does it. Or uh, The last poll I read said 62% of all people think this is the right thing to do, so it must be right. And if that's all that guides you, you'll blend right in. You might as well wear camouflage gear all the time because nobody will ever notice you. You won't be peculiar. You won't stand out. You're just going with the flow. Paul says, Christ died in order to perfect, to change, to mold for himself people who stand out. And the reason they stand out is they're eager to do that which is good, that which is pleasing to God. The Christian then becomes like a colonist with a different citizenship than everybody else in this world. We live in this world, but it's not our final place that we belong to. We're told our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, and Christ has died to claim those who would trust in him that they would be citizens of that kingdom and live here and now accordingly. I've read some things this summer, different history accounts, and got into some things where I was reading about the terrible days of the slave trade three centuries ago. Just brought back the absolute horrors and injustice of slavery to me all over again. How we could take men and women from the shores of Africa against their wills and pack them into ships and bring them to the shores of America or the Caribbean or other places and then sell them into servitude if they even survived the terrible voyage that they were brought on. But I was interested in one passage I was reading about some who were born in Africa as sons and daughters of those who were actually kings over large tribal territories there. And they were very much like the royalty of Europe in in the society of Africa. And these princes and princesses of, of tribes deep in Africa had been raised in a sense of privilege and pride, and and they had a bearing about them, and they were taught that they were nobility in their society. Well, now some man grabs them one day, puts them in a hole, throws them into the terrible filth and, and disease and suffering of that, and tells them they're nothing but a piece of property and throws chains on them. Well, the interesting thing is the, the accounts of how some of these folks still arrived on the shores across the ocean with that nobility somewhat intact, still carrying themselves differently, still saying, I am the son of a king. 
And whatever you do to me, you can't change that. There's a little bit of that in what a Christian is, no matter what the world does to us. We're sons and daughters of the king. We're governed by a king. He rules over us. He guides us. The honor of his name is upon us, and we bear that name. And if we would behave in shameful, degraded ways, we take his name down in degradation with us. That's Paul's first point here, is to live according to this unique kingdom citizenship. Live worthy, a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, then we come to a second point from verse 27, bridging on into 28 of Philippians 1. And now Paul admonishes us to stand unafraid against open enemies of the gospel. He writes, I want to hear that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Well, there are people who say, This meant something in the first century when you could get thrown in jail, as Paul did frequently for being a Christian. But, you know, we live in America. We have freedom. We aren't really persecuted in anything like this way. We don't have enemies that are armed terrorists running around that are going to treat us like those humanitarian aid workers 10 days ago who were killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan simply for starting medical clinics to poor areas of Afghanistan, we're not going to be persecuted that way. So let's not talk about persecution. But we're being very foolish and very naive if we don't realize there is very real persecution today. It's different. Its penalties may be different, but it's very real. Just look at our news media and how it is bent all the time on on a thinly veiled mockery of Christian or biblical truths the the way things are just avoided or the way things are addressed or the way that anything biblical is gets a bit of a sneer in the media the hollywood film openly mocking christianity so often i watched an old movie that's regarded won't even say what it was but it's regarded as a kind of a classic and uh, no sort of a harmless film with a lot of laughs in it in some ways and yet it has viciously anti-Christian statements in it that just shocked me, even though this movie's been around for decades. The educational bias of our universities that so many of our young people go to. We, we cherish what we've taught them. We cherish their testimonies of faith in Christ, and we send them off, and they're going to sit in classrooms, and we hope they've got the tools to sift, to sift out professors who are going to attack, absolutely attack, the entire worldview that they have been taught to know by the Scriptures. There's persecution. There are enemies of the gospel of Christ today, and they're part of the very fabric of our culture. Paul says, I want you to stand for what he calls the faith of the gospel. There's a body of belief, a body of teaching that is contrary to the spirit of the age. Maybe you could say it would be summarized in the Apostles' Creed or any statement, any overall summary of Christian faith like that. You know, when you say the Apostles' Creed in the service, I I know how you say it because I struggle too. You know, when I'm worshiping two services every Sunday morning, not one, I have to engage myself with every phrase when I'm saying I believe in the resurrection of the body and so on. I I try to engage with that statement and think of what I'm saying because I'm not just 
these aren't just words that harmlessly slide out of my mouth. This is really a revolutionary creed. It's a statement of things that are true that the world doesn't accept. And when I say this is the faith of the gospel to which I am committed and in which I stand, that's almost like a war cry to the world. I'm not standing with you, world. I'm standing with Christ. And Paul here says that this this position we put ourselves in with Christ challenges all the humanistic ideas of this world. It challenges what the world calls marriage. You've seen that in California this past week. It challenges how business ethics are done at the place where you work. It challenges how politics get approached. It challenges whether there's even such a word as truth or all we have are statements that you just spin like tops and watch them twirl in society and see where they will stop spinning. You see, as Paul asked the Philippians to stand up without fear against everything opposing the truth of the gospel, he wasn't saying, well, just try hard to be brave. No, I don't think so. I think he was saying they have a supernatural assistance as they do that. And by the way, I have an argument here with the New International Version, I would say, even though you know I read it and regard it as a good translation for the most part. But verse 27, and you know, there's no capital letters in the Greek, so this is a scholar's dispute. I know that you stand firm in one spirit. The NIV has a small s. I don't know what translation you might have that might have a capital S. The scholars are discussing there, does that mean, you know, you stand kind of in unity as a human body, or you stand in the unity of the Holy Spirit? I don't like the choice the NIV made because I don't think it's true to Paul's meaning completely here. Paul was saying, and he says it again, and the fact that it, it rings true so well with what he says about fellowship in the Spirit in two one. You stand invested with the indwelling Spirit of Christ, who is Christ remaining in you. And therefore, when you stand against people who oppose the faith of the gospel, you stand like David up against Goliath. What was David, just a brave little boy? That's not what we're meant to understand when we read the way he stood against Goliath. He wasn't just a, he was brave, of course he was, but more than that, David was consumed with passion for the honor of God as he defied this atheistic Goliath who was spinning curses down on the God of Israel. David said, I'm not quaking before you, you big mountain of flesh. I stand for the honor of the God of Israel. And in that same way, we stand against whatever institutions, attitudes, viewpoints of man that speak against the faith of the gospel, knowing that the one greater is in us is greater than the one in the world. More than that, Paul says here going on in verse 28, that when we do stand and when we witness, whether by our resistance or speaking out, it is a sign to them, he says, that they will be destroyed. find that an interesting phrase. You know what I immediately thought of when I read that? Was Jesus... The Gospel of Mark brings this out more clearly maybe than other Gospels. When Jesus confronts demons, he does that more in the Gospel of Mark than the other Gospels. And it's so interesting to see that encounter. 
as there were real unholy spirits of Satan in people, and they recognized Christ. They, having that power from the evil one, were able to recognize Christ even when men didn't. And they shrieked at him, and they were afraid of him. And when he cast them out, they, they left more or less screaming as they departed. I think Paul's saying something like that here. You think that those who stand against the faith of the gospel in our society are strong, intellectually proud, and ever so competent. Paul said, you know how I see them? When we resist them with the truth of Christ, it's a sign that they will be destroyed, and their illogical, irrational arguments against that truth of Christ is like the shrieking of a demon as he departs. It's his death wail. He's a dying soul. And so many today in our intellectual elite have no firm place to stand. If you study their arguments and compare them to the laws of logic, they're flimsy, they're poor, they're just not even well argued. And I think deep down they realize it. You might even have reason to pity them rather than to fear them. And Paul goes on to say here, as you stand firm against those who oppose the faith of the gospel, know this too from verse 29. You have noble companions. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle I had and still have. Jesus Christ and his apostle Paul and every other apostle and servants of Christ for centuries have had to suffer for the truth of the gospel. The suffering that we do, of course, is actually quite small compared to what people have done in the centuries before us. Jesus, you see, came among people who were religious. They were the good folks, they thought. And he came, and here are these people that had been living in the religious shadow world where they could be greedy and proud and self-consumed and yet pose at being religious because they moved about in shadows. Nobody ever shined any light on them. All of a sudden, into their midst came somebody called light of the world. And believe me, when the light of the world is present, you're not in the shadows anymore, and what you are is exposed. And when you're exposed, you become angry, and you strike back, and you want to put out that light of the world, which is exactly, of course, how they reacted to Jesus, how they reacted to Paul. You read the whole last portion of Acts with, with the ridiculous series of trials that Paul went through. Nobody had anything firm to say against him, and yet they prevailed on the basis of sheer power. Why would we suppose that we would not get kickback reaction from the world that crucified Jesus and beheaded Paul? This text is telling us that any kind of gospel suffering is not a sign that God has neglected us or doesn't care about us or hasn't noticed what's happening. It's really an honor. It's a badge of Christ. It may be the best indicator that you are actually living up to your calling. John Calvin said persecutions are to be reckoned as among God's benefits, telling us that we are progressing on in godliness, for he decorates us with the insignia of Christ. What an honor to be rejected for Christ. A life that is lived worthy of our high calling in Jesus isn't one that's going to be sheltered from worldly criticism, 
from ostracism of people who think only according to the world, or even from their harsh abuse, or perhaps in the worst extent, even from them bringing death upon us. Now, finally, I look at these first two verses of Philippians 2 quickly because they do belong here with chapter 1, I think. And I make a last point here to paraphrase Paul and say, never forget the true Christians are bound as one fellowship in the steel bands of Christ. They say, where do you see that? Well, I just quickly trace the argument if you would look at those two verses, 1 and 2 of chapter 2. The apostle argues that each believer has a great encouragement by knowing that Christ loves him. He's comforted by this limitless love in union with Christ. He rejoices that the Holy Spirit has fellowship with His Spirit. And knowing that these things have happened makes Him compassionate and tender-hearted towards other people. Therefore, if I paraphrase Paul here, it seems like he's saying, how could you face kingdom life as a believer and face it and think you're all alone? You have solidarity and common experience with every other Christian in one mind, one love. One purpose, stand together. Be strengthened as you stand against opposition in other, with other believers. There are those who say the way we can have ecumenical unity among Christians, well, they say we have to get rid of all these sinful denominations. We have to water down all the, the, the uh, distinctives that, that divide us from one another, and somewhere we'll get at a, a tiny core of Christian unity, and we'll worship on that basis. Well, the, the 1960s and onwards proved what a false thing that was, because by the time you took out all the distinctives, you had nothing left. But Paul doesn't call here for a least common denominator fellowship among Christians. He calls for the highest common denominator. He says, look, you are bound in the steel bands of Christ with those who, like you, are encouraged in, the, in union with him, who are comforted in his love, who possess his spirit. They have a like mind with you. They have the same love as you. They have the same purpose as you. 1 John 1.3 says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're appealing to fellowship at the highest possible principle. We commonly belong to God in Christ. That overcomes any possible little distinctive of doctrine or practice. I have in mind as a picture of this something that shows how simple my mind is in this technological age, something that was an invention of man I don't even know how many centuries ago, a long, long time ago. And yet to me, it's, it's an amazing invention. I'm thinking of a wooden barrel. Can you picture a barrel in your mind? They're always made of oak, I think. Think if, if what a marvel a barrel is. I don't care how good a, a, we probably got some great woodworkers in our congregation here. If I turned those wood, woodworkers of our congregation loose with an oak tree and some basic tools and, said, and some bands of steel and said, make me a barrel, I wonder which of them could do it. If you stop and think about the technology that is in a barrel, you have to cut the oak staves, then you have to curve them. I guess they steam the wood or something to curve it. 
And then you have to, and then the marvel of it is you have to bevel each one in, in, with very precise angles so that they fit in against each other extremely tight, so that they'll make very tight bonds. And then if you have the skill to get that far, you have to somehow get 30 of those in a ring and then get these steel bands around them and a top and a bottom. And when you've done that, you've got this amazing construction that to me is just a marvel of human ingenuity and design. It's all of these pieces, if you can think of it this way, held in a mathematical tension against one another. There's a tremendous tension as those staves are bound together by those steel bands. And yet there's a great strength there, a great durability. You just try to tear a barrel apart. It's really hard. You need to get those steel bands off, first of all. If that illustration has any meaning at all, I think it's, it's a little like what Paul is saying here. These steel bands that Christ has given to his people of one mind, one love, one purpose, holds them together. We are not just individual staves as we stand for the faith of Christ against this world. We are bound together with God's people in a great strength to be a vessel of his grace in this time and society. Let me just close with this. You know, as we receive new members for this church, as many of you have come, professed your faith, and have been welcomed into membership, you know that you're asked to affirm membership vows. And we emphasize those vows in our membership class, how the first one tells of your lost estate without God in this world, that you're a sinner, you need God. The second says that you recognize Christ as the meeting of that need, as the only Savior, unique one sent from God, and you affirm your faith in those first two vows. And then we come to the third vow, which is the first one about the church as such. And I think people don't pay as much attention to it. But here's, here's what I ask members in that third vow. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live in a manner becoming a follower of Christ? Let me tell you, when the session goes to approach folks who are abusing their wives or who have abandoned their marriages, and they say, why are you coming to talk to me? What business is this of yours? We say to them, do you remember answering a question that you would endeavor to live in a manner becoming a follower of Christ? And their selective memory has no idea that they ever said that. Folks, we don't respond to that question merely by trying hard to obey God's rules. We respond by being new creations in Jesus Christ, indwelt by His very Holy Spirit, enabled by Him, standing beside other new creations of God's grace, strengthened by them, and therefore taking a stand in an evil age. There was a missionary strategist named Stanley Jones who wrote a number of years ago. Listen to this. He said, early Christians did not say in dismay, look at the wreck this world has come to. Instead, they exclaimed, look at God's redemption that has come into this wrecked world. They saw that where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And so based on the assurance of the cross, They swung from blank despair and fatalism over to faith and Christ-based confidence that sin had met its match at the cross. 
By God's grace, I charge you. You have a high calling in Jesus Christ. If you are his new creation, live worthy of that calling with all the equipment and encouragement God makes available to you. Live by his power and live for his honor day by day. Our Father, we all need this. Tomorrow or Friday, someone, maybe without even knowing this is a decisive moment, somebody will make a choice to think the way the world thinks, to follow the world's values, to go the way of least resistance, or to stand out and be peculiar and to honor Christ. Our Father, we pray that you give us a great consciousness of the one to whom we belong. And remind us again and again of your power at work by your Spirit as well. Shape us and mold us that we might be people who even in our sinfulness and weakness could honor you for Jesus' sake. Amen.